Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Adam God Finale. Today is Tuesday, April 28th, 2020. We remain in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, and Radio Free Mormon remains committed to producing a new podcast every weekday during the present emergency in order to hopefully help those of you who are sheltering at home and have nothing better to do than to listen to daily podcasts from yours truly. The reason tonight's episode is called Adam God Finale is because this is the last episode, I promise, in which I'm going to be addressing elements of the Adam God theory and how they impact other aspects of LDS theology. Tonight, I want to address a couple of more issues related to the Adam-God theory and also deal with some comments and observations that I have received from listeners to this program. But first, a message from our sponsor. There has been one announcement that I have been meaning to make for about the past two weeks, but I keep forgetting when I get into the podcast. And it has to do with the reviews that I've been receiving over at the Radio Free Mormon Facebook page. A couple of weeks ago now, I reported on a review that I had received at Radio Free Mormon Facebook page from an individual named Riaz who had given me zero stars and had left a somewhat insulting quotation from the book of Isaiah, which apparently likened either me or Mormonism to Lucifer, who aspired to become like God, but instead was cast down to the earth for his pride. Now, honestly, I don't think that that was made toward me personally. This is a common proof text used by many Christians in order to argue against the Mormon doctrine that men can become gods. As I reported then, it seemed very clear that this individual had not listened to any of my podcasts and thought that my purpose was to promote current Orthodox Mormonism, which it certainly is not, as any of you know who have listened to pretty much any of my podcasts. But it seems that just because the word Mormon appeared in the title, Radio Free Mormon, that was enough to set this individual off. And after I made that announcement, there appeared a plethora of positive reviews, wonderful reviews at my Facebook page, and I want to thank everybody for those wonderful reviews. But I also wanted to report on something that you may have noticed when you went to post your review. And that thing that you may have noticed is that the zero-star review that I reported from Riaz is no longer there at my Facebook page. And it is possible that some of you may have noticed this and may have wondered why it was that I was reporting on a review that no longer appears on my Facebook page. Well, what happened behind the scenes is that after I had made that report of that negative review from Riaz, a listener to this podcast had made a comment to Riaz, and I don't know what that comment is either, but the substance of it was, I believe, to set him straight, and as a result of that listener's comment on this review, Riaz deleted his review. When he deleted his review, it also deleted the comment that prompted the deletion of his review. And so if any of you are wondering why it is that that review I reported on is no longer on my Facebook page. That's the rest of the story. Another correction I have to make to yesterday's podcast is I talked about how it was that if Brigham Young had not changed the rules on succession to the presidency shortly before his death, that Orson Hyde would have become the next president of the church, and then after Orson Hyde passed away, Orson Pratt would have become the next president of the church, and only after Orson Pratt passed away would John Taylor have become the president of the church. I said at the time that John Taylor would not have been the third president of the church, but he would have been the sixth president of the church. That was in error, and I only figured this out when I was driving home and playing it over in my mind. Because actually, if that scenario had occurred, John Taylor would not have been the sixth president of the church. He would have been the fifth president 
of the church. The only thing that causes me more chagrin about this error is that I originally had recorded that John Taylor would have been the fifth president of the church. I then made the critical mistake of thinking about it again and changed it in the editing process to making John Taylor the sixth president. But I think that if we go back and do the math, something that I am notoriously bad at, We could see that Joseph Smith would have been the first, Brigham Young would have been the second, Orson Hyde would have been the third, Orson Pratt would have been the fourth, and yes, then John Taylor would have been the fifth, not the sixth president of the church. Just wanted to correct the record on that. But now, let's get to tonight's subject, because the Adam-God theory is like an octopus. It has many, many tentacles that reach out into different areas, and it takes a great deal of time to talk thoroughly about the Adam-God theory. You've gone over something again and again and again and again like i have certain questions get answered others spring up the mind plays tricks on you you play tricks back it's like you're unraveling a big cable knit sweater that someone keeps knitting and knitting and knitting and knitting and knitting and knitting But once again tonight, I promise you, it's going to be the last time I'm going to be talking about the Adam-God theory. There are a few things that I've said, however, that may raise questions in listeners' minds. The first question has to do with the role of Jehovah in the Adam-God theory. Because I said on a previous podcast, or perhaps it was in an answer to a comment from a listener, that if a Latter-day Saint goes to the temple and participates in the endowment, that the endowment can be seen as completely consistent with the Adam-God theory. Indeed, looking at the endowment through the lens of the Adam-God theory, all of a sudden, a lot of pieces start falling into place. Now, you will remember that one of the components of Brigham Young's Adam-God theory is that Adam is the father of our spirits, the spirits of all the people who came to this earth, including Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ was the firstborn spirit of Adam in the pre-mortal existence. But when you compare this with the endowment, we see that the character of Jehovah is portrayed very clearly as one of the three beings who are in charge of the creation of this world, and he is situated in authority and power, not beneath Michael, who we understand is Adam in the endowment, but between Michael and Elohim. The rank of seniority is very clear. It's Elohim on the top, Jehovah, and then Michael. And it could certainly be asked, how could you say that the temple endowment is consonant with the Adam-God theory when clearly Jehovah, who is Jesus Christ, is pictured in the endowment as being above Michael, or in other words, above Adam? Well, that takes us back to the role of Jehovah and the history of Jehovah in the LDS church. We as Latter-day Saints are taught as one of the elements of doctrine in the church that Jehovah is Jesus Christ. They are one in the same being and that typically we understand the name Jehovah as being the name applied to Jesus in the pre-mortal existence. Therefore, it is very common when Latter-day Saints go to the endowment and they see the character Jehovah, they immediately make that connection that Jehovah is the pre-mortal Jesus. The fact of the matter is, however, that historically speaking, and I'm just talking about historically within the history of the LDS church, Jehovah has not always been so easily and so readily equated with the pre-mortal Jesus. In fact, you will remember on a prior episode when I was talking about James Talmadge and his books, Jesus the Christ, as well as the Articles of Faith, and how those were published at the very tail end of the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th century. And I talked then about how it was that James Talmadge played a pivotal role in taking many of the disparate ideas of Mormonism and coalescing them and organizing them 
into a format which became adopted by the LDS Church as the correlated curriculum, as the received understanding of what it was that Joseph Smith restored as far as doctrine is concerned. And one of those elements that James Talmadge coalesced for the Latter-day Saints is this idea that Jehovah is the pre-mortal Jesus Christ. Prior to that, however, many Latter-day Saints, if not most Latter-day Saints, did not see Jehovah as being related to Jesus Christ at all. In fact, in the days of Joseph Smith, we can see that Jehovah was understood pretty much the way it is in other Christian churches as simply a name for God. And when I say God, I mean God the Father, not God the Son. In this way, the Latter-day Saints understood early on Jehovah in sort of the same way that Jehovah's Witnesses consider Jehovah today, which is, it is the name of God, which is the way it is presented in the Old Testament. And nowhere is this more clearly set forth than in Doctrine and Covenants section 109, which you will recall is the dedicatory prayer for the Kirtland Temple. Joseph Smith said that this dedicatory prayer was received by him as revelation from God. So these aren't just Joseph Smith's thoughts that he's putting together to offer the dedicatory prayer, although that would be significant enough, but Joseph Smith presents this dedicatory prayer as being revealed to him. So it's not just Joseph Smith's thoughts, it's God's thoughts on the subject. Once again, this is a revelation received in 1836 for the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. And the significance of this prayer is that it is addressed to Jehovah. The prayer is to Jehovah. In this prayer, it appears that Jehovah is seen as a name for God to whom this prayer, this dedicatory prayer, is offered. And also, elsewhere in the prayer, Jesus Christ, or the Son, is referred to as a separate being, apparently from the Jehovah to whom this prayer is made. So this is section 109. It's not PT 109, it's DC 109. It was offered at the dedication of the temple at Kirtland, Ohio on March 27, 1836. And it's a rather long prayer, but I'm just going to focus on a couple of relevant passages. The very first verse says, Thanks be to thy name, O Lord God of Israel who keep us covenant and show us mercy unto thy servants who walk uprightly before thee. So at the very outset, we understand that this prayer is addressed to the Lord God of Israel. In verse 4, it makes it clear that it's being addressed to the Father because it says, And now we ask thee, Holy Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of thy bosom, etc., to accept of this house. So the prayer is to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. It continues in the same vein in verse 14. And do thou grant, Holy Father, that all of those who shall worship in this house may be taught words of wisdom out of the best books. And this phraseology is repeated throughout. Verse 22, and we ask thee, Holy Father. Verse 24, we ask thee, Holy Father. So there can be no doubt that this is indeed directed to Heavenly Father. And again, in verse 29, we ask the Holy Father. But when we get to verse 42, suddenly we are brought up short by the fact that the Holy Father, to whom this entire dedicatory prayer is addressed, is called Jehovah. Verse 42, But deliver thou, O Jehovah, we beseech thee, thy servants from their hands, and cleanse them from their blood. And it continues on after that with the same kind of phrases of Holy Father that we've seen leading up to this address to Jehovah. 47, we ask the Holy Father. So it seems very clear from the text 
of section 109, this dedicatory prayer that Joseph Smith claimed to receive as revelation from God, that the father, at the time at least, that Joseph Smith is giving this address, that the father was understood to be Jehovah. Jehovah was a name of the father, and Jehovah, the father, was a separate being from Jesus Christ, in whose name Joseph Smith was giving the dedicatory prayer to Jehovah. So what does this mean for the Adam-God theory? Well, what it means is that at least for the first people and the first generation or so who attended the temple and were confronted with the aspect of three beings who organized the earth, Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael, that they did not see or likely did not see Jehovah as being a representation of Jesus Christ. Instead, Jehovah was another name for God, and the remarkable thing about the endowment for its first patrons was not that Jesus equaled Jehovah, because Jesus did not equal Jehovah in all likelihood to them, at least not if they understood Jehovah the way that Joseph Smith understood it in section 109. Instead, the remarkable thing is that God is there, named as Jehovah, above Michael, but the surprise is that there is a God above Jehovah, and that his name is Elohim. And in this way, it is quite likely that the first generation of temple goers saw these characters as representing an instantiation or an incarnation of Joseph Smith's final thoughts on the subject of the eternal regression of God, which he presented to the saints at the sermon at the Grove shortly before his death in Carthage, Illinois, in June of 1844. It was in that sermon that he talked about the father having a father himself, because where on earth have we ever heard of a father who was not first a son? And Joseph Smith appears to have played that back ostensibly to infinity, that there is this eternal regression of gods, one God above another, and all of them above our God. So that's all I wanted to say about Jehovah for this podcast and how the Adam-God theory impacts our understanding of Jehovah and how Doctrine and Covenants section 109 impacts our understanding of Jehovah. There has been a definite doctrinal development within Mormonism as to our understanding of the name Jehovah and to whom that name properly applies. As I say now, for the past 100 years, Jehovah has been understood quite fundamentally within the LDS Church as being the name of the pre-mortal Jesus, but it was not so during that first generation of Mormons. And in fact, that identification of Jehovah as being a God that is separate from and above and apart from Jesus Christ continues to be reflected in the scriptures of the LDS Church up to the present day. So there's a bit of a disconnect there between what we read in section 109 and the current correlated orthodox understanding of Jehovah as being the pre-mortal Jesus. Now I want to talk a little bit about one other theory. Now, this is a bit of a fringe theory, but an individual came up with this theory. It's sometimes called the two-atom theory. And what the two-atom theory is, is an attempt by a faithful member of the church to take all of these very strange, very unorthodox statements by Brigham Young about Adam and God and try and force them to fit the current orthodox teaching of the church. As I said before, from an apologetic point of view, Understanding the Adam-God theory is usually meant to be forcing the Adam-God theory to fit the contemporary doctrine. And that is what this individual was able to do. And whether he was successful at it, I have my doubts, but I'll let you judge for yourself. Now, the member of the church who came up with this idea, his name is Eldon Watson, E-L-D-E-N Watson, W-A-T-S-O-N, just like Dr. Watson. And you can look up a fuller explanation of his two-atom theory on the internet 
at eldenwatson.net. But I'm going to synopsize it here for you. Because what Eldon Watson does is it seems to be his goal, as it was mine at one time, as it is for many Latter-day Saints who encounter the Adam-God theory and these curious statements from Brigham Young, to try by hook or by crook to make it fit current LDS theology. And the way that Eldon Watson came up with was really quite ingenious. What he said was, there are actually two Adams. And what he meant by that was this. There is a set of statements by Brigham Young in which he talks about Adam in a way that we are quite comfortable with in contemporary Mormonism. In other words, he talks about Adam as being the first person who was created in the Garden of Eden, that he and his wife partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, that they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, and then they started having children and ended up being the progenitors of the entire human race. That much is comfortable within current LDS theology. And to take those statements by Brigham Young at face value. And that when Brigham Young talks about Adam in that way, then he's using one name for Adam. But here's the twist. In this separate group of statements by Brigham Young, in which he talks about Adam in a way that is completely foreign to the current teaching of the LDS Church. In other words, in those statements where Brigham Young talks about the Adam-God theory, and he talks about Adam as if he were Elohim. In other words, the way we currently understand Elohim as being the father of all the spirits who came to this earth and who is the God of this world and the only God with whom we have to do. When Brigham Young talked about Adam in that sense, according to Eldon Watson, then he was talking about Elohim. He really is talking about God, only he's calling God Adam as well. So this is why it's sometimes called the two-atom theory. This resolves all the difficulties, you see. There are actually two atoms. Adam is the name for the real Adam, the regular Adam, the Adam that we understand to be Adam, the Adam that was created in the Garden of Eden. But Adam is also a second name, a secret name for God the Father. And in his theory, he will even refer to them as Adam and Adam Jr. Adam being Elohim and Adam Jr. being Adam, the guy in the Garden of Eden. Now, the main problem with this theory is that even though it's somewhat ingenious and even though it resolves all the difficulties, the problem is is that Brigham Young never ever set forth this idea in any of his writings or in any of his sermons. He never talked about an Adam Sr. and an Adam Jr. He never talked about two Adams existing. This is a theory that is made up out of whole cloth by Eldon Watson. And the reason it's made up out of whole cloth is to resolve the contradictions between what Brigham Young taught about Adam God and the current teachings of the church. As soon as you say, well, there's two Adams, and when Brigham Young is talking about God the Father, then he's talking about one Adam, and when he's talking about the guy in the Garden of Eden, he's talking about another Adam. He just calls them both by the same name. Not at all confusing, of course, but this confusion ends up resolving the difficulties you see. And if we get to the last section of Eldon Watson's internet article, he actually even admits that there is no evidence that Brigham Young ever suggested that he was talking about two different beings by the same name, i.e. the name of Adam. And there, Eldon Watson admits the following. We return now to the question raised earlier. If it is this simple, i.e. the two-Adam theory, if it is this simple, why didn't Brigham Young just say so?
And then Eldon Watson's own answer to that question, as was pointed out previously, there is some indication that he did try to make the distinction between Adam Sr. and Adam Jr., but that doesn't sufficiently answer the question. Indeed, it does not answer the question because when you look at the quotes where he's saying that Brigham Young did try to make that distinction, actually, there's no indication that Brigham Young tried to make that distinction at all. This two-atom theory is an excellent example of trying to force Brigham Young's theory about Adam God to fit the current orthodox narrative of the LDS Church. But not only that, it introduces another wrinkle into the story. Now, there are some of you among my listeners who have probably heard this fringe idea floated at some time in the church, whether in your Sunday school class or somewhere else, that it was God the Father himself who came into the Garden of Eden, and he brought his wife or one of his wives with him. By the way, I'm talking about Elohim now, okay, not two Adams. But you've heard the idea, perhaps, that God himself came with one of his wives or his wife into the Garden of Eden, that there he partook and she partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and that thereby they became mortal again, and that in the Garden of Eden, they produced the bodies of Adam and Eve by the regular process of having sexual relations with each other, at least twice, I guess, and then giving birth to a boy and a girl. And that boy and girl ended up becoming Adam and Eve. And from there, the story picks up as normal, and Adam and Eve end up having physical bodies, and they then get cast out of the Garden of Eden, and things proceed as normal or at least as normal as they're described in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to guess there are some of you who have not heard of that idea, but I also am going to bet that there are at least a few of you who have heard that idea floated in church. Well, that idea, as strange as it sounds and as queer as it sounds, ends up, I believe, being traced back to this idea of the two-atom theory proposed by Eldon Watson. Because the problem with his theory and the additional wrinkle it introduces into the whole scenario is this very idea. You will remember that according to the Adam-God theory, Adam, together with one of his wives, produced all the spirits that were to come to this earth in the pre-mortal existence, and that Adam then came down to the garden and commenced the process with his wife, Eve, of providing physical bodies for all of their spiritual children. Okay, now Brigham Young is on the record as having said that. Eldon Watson now, with his two-Adam theory, is going to look at that and is going to say, well, if Brigham Young is saying that Adam did all these things, then he's talking about Heavenly Father because obviously he can't really be talking about Adam because that conflicts with current LDS teaching. So he's left with this problem. If Brigham Young was talking about Adam having produced the spirits in the pre-mortal existence and coming down to the Garden of Eden and eating of the fruit and becoming mortal and fallen thereby, then Eldon Watson, according to the terms of his own theory, has to posit that that individual is actually Heavenly Father being referred to by Brigham Young as this other Adam. Okay, I hope that part makes sense, at least within the framework of the two-Adam theory. Now, if that is true, then that means that Heavenly Father, whom Brigham Young is calling Adam, but that Heavenly Father, after producing all the spirit children that are going to come to this earth, came himself physically with one of his wives into the Garden of Eden as a celestial being, partook of the fruit, and thereby became mortal. And it was because they became mortal by eating of the fruit that they were then able to have two children in the garden, Adam and Eve, the second Adam in Eldon Watson's theory, or Adam Jr., in his theory, who then became the progenitors of the human race. So actually, Eldon Watson's two-Adam theory doesn't just force Brigham Young's teachings about Adam God to harmonize with the current teachings of the church. It's not just a theory that's based on no evidence from anything Brigham Young said, but it's also a theory that introduces a new wrinkle 
into the entire narrative. In other words, if Eldon Watson's two-atom theory is true, then we have this whole other step in the process, a step that is nowhere else talked about by anybody else, by Joseph Smith or by the scriptures or even by Brigham Young, and certainly not by any church leaders today, which is this idea that God the Father came with one of his wives into the Garden of Eden as celestial beings, partook of the fruit in order to become mortal, and then had sexual relations to produce the bodies of Adam and Eve. Now, why did they have to become mortal to produce the bodies of Adam and Eve? Because Adam and Eve themselves were mortal, and therefore only mortal beings could produce mortal children. See how simple it all is? So that's enough about the two-atom theory. I wanted to give that a special mention, because the positive side of the two-atom theory is that it actually takes what Brigham Young said seriously. It doesn't engage in any of those defensive tactics. It doesn't say that Brigham Young never taught it because he did. It doesn't say he was misrecorded because he wasn't. It doesn't say he was misunderstood. Well, actually, it kind of does say he was misunderstood. According to the two-atom theory, Brigham Young taught nothing but current LDS doctrine, and we know that because he referred to God the Father as Adam as well, as the guy who was in the Garden of Eden, hence the two-atom theory. But also I wanted to talk about this theory because I believe it serves as a source for this fringe doctrine which floats around and is heard from time to time in the LDS Church about God himself coming with one of his wives into the Garden of Eden, which also leads to the question that is sometimes heard in the LDS Church, does Adam have a belly button? Have you ever heard that question raised in the church? It's supposed to be something that's kind of deep. I know I heard it early on in the church in the late 70s and the early 80s, and I didn't think much about it. I thought, wow, uh, why is that even a question? That's kind of an interesting question. Is that hinting at something very deep? No, actually it's not. All it's doing is proposing the idea of, is the Adam-God theory true or is it not true? Because if the Adam-God theory is true, or if Eldon Watson's two-Adam theory is true, by the way, then Adam did have a belly button because he was born through a natural process, which would, of course, leave him with a belly button. If, on the other hand, Orson Pratt's theory is true, or the current teachings of the LDS Church is true, that Adam was simply created from the dust of the earth, then that process would not leave a belly button on Adam, presumably. Therefore, the question that floats around in the LDS Church Did Adam have a belly button? Oh, and one other thing that I have to mention is that even in my time in the LDS Church, which extends back to 1978, and my time in the temple in the LDS Church extends back to 1979 when I received my endowment in November of that year in the Provo Temple right after getting to the MTC, there was a lecture that was given to new people coming to the temple for their first endowment. And if I recall correctly, it was played at the very beginning of the endowment. There was a lecture that was presented during the course of the endowment. And of course, it was recorded. It was that deep baritone voice that's sort of emanating from everywhere, some speaker system, obviously, behind the curtains in the room. And I believe that one line in that lecture was the last vestige of the Adam-God theory. It is no longer heard in the temple, to my knowledge. And indeed, the lecture itself in which the statement appears may be a vestige of the lecture at the Vale, instituted initially by Brigham Young at the St. George Temple. And that lecture was talking about what it was that a new patron to the temple was going to be experiencing in the course of the endowment. And it talked about the creation that would be portrayed during the first part of the endowment. And the line that was there and that I remember hearing was this, that the creation is purely figurative insofar as the man and the woman are concerned. That stuck with me because I thought that was interesting. So everything else is literal. Everything else about the creation is literal except for the creation of Adam and Eve. Why would that be in the lecture in the temple? 
Why would the temple endowment itself be teaching that Adam and Eve, as portrayed in the temple endowment, as being created from the ground, Adam, and out of his rib, Eve, that is portrayed in the temple, but with a note in the lecture that that is purely figurative. And I have an idea that what it was getting at was the fact that really, that's not the way that Adam was created. That's really not the way Eve was created, but they were created in some other way, or they came to the Garden of Eden in some other way, and probably in the way that Brigham Young postulated as part of his Adam-God theory, i.e. resurrected beings from another world. Once again, it is my understanding that that line no longer appears in the Temple Lecture, and I don't know when it was that it was done away with, but likely probably in 1990 when there were a number of other changes that were made to the Temple Endowment, including the removing of the penalties. But regardless of when, I know that it was there in 1979 and for at least a number of years afterward, but that it is no longer present in the Temple. Okay, so now we get to the question of why is it that Brigham Young came up with this theory in the first place? What was his prompt? We talked about how he claimed to have received it from Joseph Smith, but that that seemed unlikely, or at a minimum, it was not supported by the historical record. Now, I've received a couple of comments from listeners giving their ideas about why it was and how it was that Brigham Young came up with the Adam-God theory in the first place, and I want to read those to you right now. The first comes in from a listener named Nick, who says, Great podcast, RFM. What do you make of arguments that place the origin of the Adam-God theory with Joseph Smith? Okay, I addressed that yesterday. He goes on, though. From what I can tell, the only evidences of this are occasions in the Doctrine and Covenants where Joseph refers to Adam as the Ancient of Days which seems to be a title that refers to God throughout the Old Testament, well, at least specifically in one chapter of Daniel, yes. That and Brigham Young stating that he received the doctrine from Joseph. It seems plausible, writes Nick, it seems plausible that Adam-God is a logical continuation of the King Follett discourse and could have been where Joseph was headed. What are your thoughts? That question was asked on April 24th, four days ago, and I said, great question. I'm going to try to address these questions in an episode next week. Well, now we're at that episode, and now I'm going to try and address those questions. On April 28th, Matthew Turner, another listener, asked a similar question related to the same issue. My thought on the connection between Adam God and Joseph Smith Jr. is Joseph's teachings that the Ancient of Days is Adam. Most Jews and Christians interpret the Ancient of Days as being God. Yahweh for Jews and either the Father, Son, or Holy Ghost for different Christians. Since the Ancient of Days is God, if Adam is the Ancient of Days, therefore Adam is God. So that's Matthew Turner's suggestion about how it was and why it was that Brigham Young ended up with the Adam-God theory. Well, of course, here we're in the realm of speculation and everybody's opinion is welcome. I just want to identify this part as speculation because Brigham Young never said how it was that he came up with this idea other than attributing it to Joseph Smith which, as we've seen, is not supported by the historical record and may indeed have just been an attempt on Brigham Young's part to give added authority to his novel and somewhat radical and in some quarters somewhat unpopular (coughs) Orson Pratt theory. So let me give you some of my ideas on the subject, and I'll try and be brief here. First off, we're going to go with the hypothesis that Joseph Smith never taught the Adam-God theory, not the way that Brigham Young taught it. Now, Joseph Smith did give some building blocks and some principles that Brigham Young may have extrapolated upon to come up with the Adam-God theory. One of those principles is, as is pointed out, that in LDS theology, Adam has an exalted place. In pretty much every other Christian theology, probably Jewish theology as well, the predominant view of Adam is one of somebody who's not exalted, 
But he's a creation of God who ended up rebelling against God in the Garden of Eden, violating the commandment that God had given him not to partake of the tree of knowledge, and ended up screwing up God's plan from what God had intended it to be from the outset, i.e. that people would live on a paradise earth forever. And typically, Christians at least, blame Adam for thwarting that plan and making the world the crummy place that it is now. But as I say, Joseph Smith turned that idea on his head and instead of making Adam a rebellious creation of God, he exalted him to be the ancient of days, whatever that means, and he also exalted him to be the equivalent of Michael. This is interesting in Mormon theology that Adam is the same being as Michael, that Michael is another name for Adam, and of course Michael being the archangel, that also exalts the position of Adam within the Mormon theology. Now, of course, in current Mormon theology, Adam is still exalted, but he's below Jesus. And of course, when I'm using the term exalted as it relates to Adam within the context of current Mormon theology, I'm speaking euphemistically and not theologically. I just want to make that point clear. And in current Mormon theology, we would see the temple endowment as representing Elohim, who is God the Father. Beneath him is Jehovah, who is Jesus Christ in contemporary Mormon theology. And then below him is Michael, who is Adam. So we can see their relative positions of authority clearly delineated within that structure. So that's one of the building blocks that Joseph Smith taught that Brigham Young may have used in his speculations, which led him to develop the idea of Adam God. Another building block has to do with this idea of multiple gods that Joseph Smith taught toward the end of his prophetic career. The idea that God the Father also has a God, and that God also has a God. Where was there a father who was not first a son? So in this way, taking what Joseph Smith said and extrapolating it, the universe is populated by thousands, if not millions of gods, all with their individual jurisdictions and world or worlds over which they preside. Now, let me take this one step further, okay? And let's talk about how Brigham Young may have seen the future of the people who live on this earth, because that's a pretty easy way for a Mormon point of view to develop along these lines. First off, we understand, let me speak for myself personally, okay? Radio Free Mormon, if he is true and faithful to all of his covenants and does everything that a good Mormon should, is going to be exalted in the next world. I will be resurrected, I will be exalted. And as part of that exaltation, I am now gonna take my wife or wives, well, that may be difficult since now I've been divorced twice, but regardless of that, let's say that I've only got one wife, that we're married in the temple, we live the Mormon dream, we have all these kids, we stay together, we both get exalted, we both become gods in the celestial kingdom. What is the first thing that we're going to do? Well, the first thing that we're going to do, at least according to Brigham Young, and he enunciated this on at least a couple of occasions, is that we are going to create a world, one world over which we will preside. And we will have children, spirit children, and those spirit children, which are going to be billions apparently, are going to come down to this earth, our first earth, which will be our first creation. And then I will be the God over that first earth. Okay, enough said. Now, what happens beyond that is that, once again, the plan of salvation reproduces itself, is that all of my spirit children who go to that earth, there's going to be thousands or perhaps even millions of my spirit children who go to that earth who are likewise going to be exalted and become gods themselves. And each of them are going to create an earth. Them and their wife or wives are going to create an earth, and then they're going to repeat the process and have spirit children, and their spirit children are going to go down to that earth. Now, at that point, I'm going to be the god, not only of the first earth I created, but also of all the worlds that all of my spirit children now exalted create. You see how this works? 
It's kind of like a big multi-level marketing scheme. And just because I am the god of my earth and the god of all of my children's earths and planets, it doesn't mean that I suddenly don't have a god above me, because of course I do. And the god above me, whoever he may be, is also the god of my earth and the god of all the earths that all of my children create. This is the natural extension of the Mormon idea of exaltation, although we usually don't take it that far. I think that Brigham Young probably did. I mean, he had to have something to do during the long treks from winter's quarters to the Salt Lake Valley and back again, which took approximately 111 days each way. He had to have something to think about. And I've got a feeling that he was thinking about these kinds of things. And we actually know he was thinking about these kind of things because he left sermons in which he talked about our future exaltation from this world and our creating a planet and populating it with our spirit children. So this part is not speculation. And he was taking the principles enunciated by Joseph Smith and taught by Joseph Smith and then extrapolating from them in what seemed, at least to him, reasonable ways. And I think I can objectively say that if you take what Joseph Smith said, that this is a reasonable extrapolation of what he said. Okay, so now having projected the plan of salvation and the plan of exaltation into the future with ourselves being exalted and then with our children on our first world being exalted, etc., now Brigham Young may have taken that projection in the future and reversed it and projected it into the past. And the first natural question to ask would be this. If our first work upon our exaltation is to create one planet and then populate it, etc., then the question can naturally be asked, who is it who stands in relation to this world that we're living on right now in the same way that we will stand in relation to our first world that we create once we're exalted? So what we have in the system is thousands, millions, even billions of planets, and every single one of them has a God who is immediately over that planet, the God who created that planet as their first work of exaltation. If that applies to us and then to our posterity and then to their posterity out to infinity in the future, could we not say that the same thing applies infinitely in the past? Once again, getting into this idea of the eternal regression of gods. So if we will be the one God over our first world, What being is it that stands in relation to our world as we will stand in relation to our first world, i.e., who is the God who is the God only of this world, the God who created this world upon his exaltation, the same way we will create our first world upon our exaltation? And I think that Brigham Young may have gone through the possibilities, and he might have looked at the Lord or God. He might have looked at Elohim and said, does Elohim stand in relation to this world as we will stand in relation to our first world? Well, immediately the answer must have struck him, no, of course not, because Elohim is the God of everything that's created. Elohim is described as being the God of all the worlds, worlds without number in Moses chapter 1 it talks about, God being the creator of. So obviously, this is not Elohim's first world, and I think that after Going through the process of elimination, however long or short that may have been, Brigham Young finally may have come up with Adam, and that Adam is Michael. Brigham Young knows the temple endowment and how Michael is portrayed in the temple endowment. He knows that Adam equals Michael, and so it may have seemed very attractive and reasonable even to Brigham Young to conclude that Adam is the creator of this world, that he was exalted from a prior planet and that his first work was to create this world and that therefore Adam is immediately above this world. He's the God of this world. He is the immediate father of our spirits as well as our bodies and that above him are other gods, including Jehovah above Michael or Adam and Elohim above Jehovah. Now, if that is correct, and once again, this is just speculation on my part, it would make sense for Brigham Young to say 
that Adam is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do. Why the only God with whom we have to do? Because he is the God of this planet. Yes, there are gods above and Brigham Young isn't saying that there aren't gods above Adam. He's not saying that Elohim is the same person as Adam. Elohim is definitely above Adam according to Brigham Young and so apparently is Jehovah by the way. But Brigham Young conceived of Adam as being our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do possibly because through this process, through this conjecture through the speculative theology based upon principles enunciated by Joseph Smith, he conceived of this world as being Adam's first creation upon Adam's exaltation from a previous world. Okay, so that's about all my speculation on that idea. Speculation as to how it was or why it was that Brigham Young ended up coming up with this idea of Adam God in the first place. And here I want to read Part of a comment by Rick W. at the RadioFreeMormon.org website. He says a number of things, raises a number of interesting questions. I hope that I have managed to answer at least most of his questions during the course of these podcasts. And once again, I'm promising this is the last one about Adam God. Before we go on to other matters in future podcasts, but here's his final comment from Rick W. In a way, the Adam God theory pushes the boundaries of Christianity in a manner that is consistent with the interesting head-scratching and mind-expanding theories that came from Joseph Smith during his later revelatory period. Those doctrines pushed Christianity beyond the Bible in a very interesting way. The modern church seems in retreat by comparison. Okay, so now, one final comment in relation to the Adam-God theory. And this comment comes from a very insightful post from a listener named Angie Coulter. Because it's very easy for me to get caught up in all the intellectual intricacies of the Adam-God theory and the different ways it impacts LDS doctrine and even continues to impact LDS doctrine up to the current day. By the way, let me just say one of those right now before we get to Angie Coulter's comment, which I want to finish with. I think that most of us have heard, once again, one of these fringe doctrines that used to be not so fringe, which has to do with the conception of Jesus Christ. Now, many of us may have overheard in hushed tones in the hallways of the church, the idea that God the Father himself came in bodily form to Mary, had sexual intercourse with her, and that was the process by which the body of the baby Jesus was produced. This is something that had currency in the LDS Church for many, many, many years, even past the currency of the Adam-God theory. It is hinted at in James Talmage's book, Jesus the Christ. It is also hinted at in teachings by Bruce R. McConkie. And I don't have those quotes with me right now. I hope you'll take my word for it. I can find those later if you want me to do another podcast dealing with this subject. But as I say, I think most of us have probably heard that idea floated at one time or another, even today in the LDS Church. Not in any official sources, as I say, but whispered in hushed tones in the hallways of the church building. This idea that God the Father came in bodily form to Mary and through the process of sexual relations created the body of Jesus Christ to be born into the world is a vestige of the Adam-God theory because Brigham Young taught that as well as part and parcel of his theory. The only difference, of course, was that when Brigham Young said that God came in bodily form to Mary and had sexual relations with her to produce baby Jesus, he didn't mean Elohim. He meant Adam. 
So once again, Brigham Young teaches that Adam comes, who is God, in bodily form to Mary to have sexual relations with her to produce the body of the baby Jesus. The Adam-God theory over time gets discarded and even denied and denounced by current leadership. And yet this element of the Adam-God theory somehow manages to be preserved within the fringe teachings of the LDS Church, but it is no longer Adam who comes to Mary because the Adam-God theory was discarded. Instead, now it is God the Father, Elohim, who comes to Mary in bodily form to do the job. Okay, enough about the Adam-God theory. I want to close with this comment by Angie Coulter, and the reason I want to close with her comment is because I think she does a good job of giving a different perspective on the Adam-God theory. Once again, I've been talking about the intellectual permutations and extrapolations and speculations of the Adam-God theory. But what Angie Coulter does is she takes all of this and boils it down to very, very real things and very real impacts on real people in the LDS church. And those impacts from the Adam-God theory are not positive, they are negative, and they are with us today, especially the women members of the LDS church. Here's what Angie Coulter has to say in her comment at the RadioFreeMormon.org website. She starts off by saying, hmm, why was it even called a theory? I'm sure Brigham taught it as doctrine. Theory downgrades its place in history. Is that part of apologetics too? By the way, let me answer that question. Yes, Brigham Young never called this the Adam-God theory. He never called it the Adam-God doctrine. He just taught it. The name for it was supplied by subsequent people. And although Brigham Young taught it as doctrine, I think it's clear that Adam-God theory is part of apologetics and it is used as a way to downgrade what it was that Brigham Young taught, portraying it not as official doctrine or revelation, both of which Brigham Young claimed it to be, but instead just calling it a theory in order to soften the authoritative nature of what it was that Brigham Young taught in this regard. So that's a very good comment. Angie Coulter goes on, and I would rename equivocation in this case as a type of gaslighting. Lastly, I think, as you discovered, this is Angie Coulter, lastly, I think, as you discovered, that Brigham was very clear about what he meant. While there may be some surface differences, on a fundamental level, the modern church still follows this bizarre train of thought, even though they want to package it in a more digestible manner than good old blunt Brigham did. He was about as delicate as a bull in a china shop. She goes on, here's what I say they've kept, if I'm understanding the doctrine. Number one, with multiple gods all over the place, the confusion about who is God and how that all works remains just as ambiguous and confusing. Number two, they haven't dropped the doctrine of God having been a man as we are who has now advanced to a God. Number three, the doctrine crudely admits that a polygamist wife will fill planets with offspring, which is talked about in hushed tones and still part of the belief. Number four, temple polygamy is still practiced, and polygamy is believed in as the ultimate reward. The dropping of the other details are irrelevant if they keep the ones I've mentioned. Now you can start to see why it is that I want to conclude this episode with Angie Coulter's comments because I think they are so to the point and they bring what is theoretical in the past up to the present in very real and impactful ways in the current LDS church. She continues, the feigned outrage from the leaders because they've been embarrassed by the discovery of Brigham's indelicate teaching, the feigned outrage from the leaders doesn't change the fact that they still hold to the most offensive tactics of the doctrine today. 
Brigham didn't have to tiptoe around these weird ideas in his one-man-run dictatorship in the Wiley West. With the tumbleweeds, he had no need of apologists. His pride wouldn't have allowed it anyway, I dare say. I'm no seasoned apologist or researcher, writes Angie Coulter, just an armchair amateur trying to apply a bit of common sense. What do I know? Well, I think that from what you've written, you obviously know quite a bit. I know this much, she concludes. I know this much. I sure don't miss the smoke and mirrors. That was an interesting look at what you did for a time. Wow, they didn't deserve you. Well, (laughs) I appreciate that comment. They didn't deserve me. Well, the person I was at the time, maybe they did deserve. The person I am now, maybe they don't. I guess that's all a matter of taste. And thank you for that entire comment, which I think is extremely articulate, extremely well thought out, and shows how these doctrines and ideas and concepts related to the Adam-God theory, even if the Adam-God theory was not the source of all of these doctrines, continues to be played out in the LDS church today. Okay, once again, as I promised, that's it for the Adam-God theory. Tomorrow I'm going to be talking about something else, and tomorrow I want to talk about a subject which I'm going to call the Revelation Revolution. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.